Welcome to Acton Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. In his article in the September 21st edition of National Review, Toward a Conservative Environmentalism, Nate Hockman says conservatism and conservation aren't usually thought of as congruent. In fact, for the better part of half a century, many Americans have seen the two as antithetical. Indeed, environmentalism generally, aspects of it like concern over global warming or climate change, and the various proposed methods of addressing those problems, like the Green New Deal, have been associated with or come from the political left. But, according to Hockman, environmentalism need not be a partisan issue or a cause owned by only one ideology. What does a conservative environmentalism look like? How can environmental concerns be better addressed through solutions guided by market-based principles instead of government-led efforts? And how would a conservative environmentalism that, quote, places the dignity of the human person at the center of its moral understanding better serve us all? Nate Hockman joins us to discuss. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. I'm joined today by Nate Hockman. Mr. Hockman is a senior at Colorado College, a Young Voices associate contributor, a conservative fellow at the Citizens Climate Lobby, and a former editorial intern at National Review and The Dispatch. He has an article in the new edition of National Review entitled Toward a Conservative Environmentalism. Nate, welcome to Acton Line. Thanks so much for having me, Eric. So let's start simply here, what is a conservative environmentalism and how do you differentiate it from either a leftist environmentalism or environmentalism qua environmentalism? Yeah, I think that's sort of the the fundamental question that my National Review article is trying to uh, get at because uh, unfortunately, conservatism in, in the American context and environmentalism have been thought of as separate and even antithetical to one another for the last few decades, um, at least. But my contention um, is, you know, I quote the the late uh, British conservative philosopher, Roger Scruton, who wrote a whole book about conservative environmentalism. Um, And I agree with with what Scruton is saying, which is that environmentalism and conservation at their core are fundamentally conservative values. The the want to sort of preserve our, our inheritance, both in terms of sort of natural and ecological inheritance and political and moral inheritance and pass them down through the generations to, to posterity um, is the heart of the conservative disposition. Um, and my second contention in differentiating that from progressive or left-wing forms of environmentalism is that while I'm all in favor of bipartisanship and I think that we should um, cooperate on policies as, as much as we're capable of doing, in many ways, 
the conservative impulse that leads to environmentalism is diametrically opposed to the progressive impulse that leads to environmentalism. Progressives see environmentalism and particularly the fight against climate change, which I think is one of the sort of hot button issues in the environmentalist movement as part and parcel of a larger political project that seeks to transform our society. They see climate change as a symptom of modernity, of American imperialism, of late stage capitalism, right? And, and the fight against climate change needs to therefore be connected to a transformative political project. Conservatives, insofar as we are environmentalists, um, seek to preserve and, and conserve the environment um, because it's part of the things that we love about our community. Um, and I, I think my argument is that a conservative environmentalism is a much richer, more robust uh, environmentalism because it's rooted in a sense of place and a love of community, whereas the progressive environmentalism seeks to impose a larger transformative political project on our society as a way to sort of uh, transcend the, the current state of, of our, our life. To the extent that the indictment is accurate, why do you think conservatism has come to be associated with, well, I guess we should say with regard to climate change, uh, skepticism or denial of its existence in some cases, um, and with environmentalism uh, in general as kind of saying, well, that's really seemingly saying that's a progressive left-wing issue and it's not something we concern ourselves with? Yeah, I, I think it's a couple things, right? One is just the sort of pragmatic fact of the relationship between any political ideology and coalitional politics in liberal democracy, right? The Republican Party has sort of been viewed as the vehicle for conservatism and for better or for worse, conservatism and Republican politics have an effect on one another. And big business, uh, in this case, particularly um, big oil, uh, have a... a say in Republican Party politics, and they've been traditionally opposed to, for, for many good reasons, to the sort of ambitious big government climate policies, and that's affected conservative thinking on the matter. Um, but the other thing is the fact that environmentalism has been dominated by the left since, um, most recently since sort of Al Gore, but also you can trace it back to radical environmentalist thinking in the 60s. Um, and as a result, conservatives rightly, I think, have a sort of uh, knee-jerk revulsion at um, much of the language we use to talk about environmentalism because so often they've seen it associated with leftist ideology more, more broadly. Um, and that's because it often is. Um, and you have a environmentalist left that insists that issues like climate change be treated as a larger sort of uh, way to pass the entire progressive wish list, right? You see this most recently with the Green New Deal, where the architect of the Green New Deal said it's not really about climate change, it's about transforming the entire economy. So conservatives see that, and many who might otherwise be sympathetic about common sense approaches to solving climate change feel like they don't, like climate change is a Trojan horse for the progressive agenda, and that therefore it's a partisan left-wing issue and that they're not interested in, in solving it whatsoever. Um, and I'm hoping that you know, increasingly, especially as young conservatives are more engaged in the climate issue, you see a dissolution of that uh, or a dissolving of that sort of partisan binary on the issue. And, and, and you have more conservative sort of forwarding market-based limited government solutions to things like climate change. Perhaps we should back up and get a good definition here, because uh, I think it 
is a source of some of the confusion in the conversation that goes on and that we can get to the points about apocalyptic rhetoric and, and some of the other things I think distract from the heart of the issue. Uh, how would you define climate change and how would you grade the seriousness of the issue of climate change? Right. Yeah. Well, I think when we're talking about climate change in a political sense, we're talking about anthropogenic climate change, right? Which is the, the fact that the climate is changing. And in, in this case, generally, the, uh, the global temperatures are going up as a result of uh, greenhouse gas emissions and rising um, carbon emissions uh, as the result of human activity, right? So the climate naturally changes to a certain extent, and it goes through different cycles. But what we're looking at right now as a phenomenon is the fact that the climate is changing and, and, and heating up. The globe is heating up more rapidly than it normally would be because of human activity, particularly in regards to carbon emissions. Um, insofar as that's a problem for humanity writ large, right, and the sort of stability of, of, of the human um, uh, society, in, in, in particularly in the developed world, um, there's a lot of debate, legitimate debate, over how much of an issue that's going to be in the next 100, 200, 300 years. Um, what we do know, and I think this I can say with, with some legitimacy, is that if nothing is done about it, and if we continue to go, you know, proceed on the path that we are on right now, um, there will be challenges. Um, and that doesn't mean that they aren't, there aren't challenges that, that we can, can't transcend, um, but there are real ecological effects, which in turn affect human communities um, as a result of a increasingly destabilized uh, climate. And you, see, you will see that in terms of sort of mass migration from the global south up, up to the global north, um, in terms of exacerbated natural disasters in some cases. So the apocalyptic rhetoric about there being seven to 12 years uh, you know, left to, for the human race to survive if we don't completely cut off our carbon emissions is ridiculous. Um, but there is a range from sort of warming uh, two degrees Celsius to four degrees Celsius over the next hundred years, as predicted by the IPCC. Um, and if it's two degrees Celsius, it'll be relatively mild. Um, and it's, it won't be anything that that sort of human innovation can't overcome. If it's four degrees Celsius, we're looking at a, a, at actually a relatively apocalyptic situation. Um, so the, the, there's, there's big questions about where exactly um, we will end up, but I think that the conservative thing to do would be to take preemptive action to a certain extent within reason to make sure that we're not at the upper end of, of that sort of uh, apocalyptic spectrum. How much of the conflict do you think is a conflict of visions of sorts between uh, the left, which seems to express a great deal of certainty in those kinds of projections that you were just discussing, and people on the right who, I think in the sense of what uh, Friedrich Hayek identified in the use of knowledge in society, that... Uh, we aren't as certain about these things. I mean, we've even seen this play out with the initial. Uh, we'll come back. We'll come back to a point about the pandemic in uh, in a moment here. Uh, with the initial predictions about the death rates from the COVID nineteen pandemic, that it's been bad, but it has not been nearly as bad as was originally predicted. And there's something in the conservative sensibility that looks at those kinds of overhyped numbers, that kind of certainty that the left seems to express in them, and then looks at them in the context of 
you know, go back 30 some years where you have predictions of the coming ice age, which turns into then global warming, which turns into climate change. And there's just not a lot, uh, there's a lot of people talking past each other rather than actually talking to each other about what the nature of the problem really is here and what we might be able to do about it. Right. Well, and not even just the sort of predictions of the Ice Age, but you had Al Gore saying that New York was going to be underwater by 2020. Right. So you, you have routinely had over predictions by people on the left. And I think it's, you know, it's very legitimate for people on the right or skeptics more broadly to react negatively to that. Um, but I think the problem is that conservative skepticism about epistemological certainty. Right. Especially when that epistemological certainty is proved wrong time and time again becomes an issue when it becomes its own dogma. Um, and in certain corners of the conservative movement in America, there is, be, there is many sort of political actors and commentators have become a, a attached to the dogma that climate change is a hoax altogether, or at least anthropogenic climate change is a hoax. Um, and that I think is something that we also need to exercise skepticism towards, particularly as increasingly evidence comes out that it's, it's not entirely a hoax. Um, the, the problem is the sort of left-wing overprediction is often clearly, if not cynical, then, then tied to the desire to sort of expand government, pass a variety of left-wing policies. Um, and in order to create a bipartisan coalition that conservatives can sign on to for sensible climate policies, um, we have to be able to decouple the left-wing sort of concern about climate change with the necessity of passing every single policy that the left wants to pass. Um, and I think the, the typical traditional conservative skepticism towards the alarmism about climate change is that it's often clearly um, an alarmism with, with the direct intent of uh, being able to pass policies that, that the left wouldn't otherwise be able to pass. Um, and I think it's it would be good for conservatives to come to the table more and 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 talk about climate change as an issue that needs to be taken seriously but in order for that to happen the left also needs to sort of uh reconcile themselves to the fact that climate change and the problem of climate change doesn't mean that they just get to pass every single policy they've been trying to pass for the last half century. There have to be compromises, particularly in our political system, which requires a certain amount of compromise. Well, we see this reinforced in proposals like the Green New Deal, which purports to address climate issues, uh, but also includes arguments in favor of the uh, things like universal health care as being inextricably li uh, linked to having uh, a better climate and fixing the climate change problem. Um, to, to what extent is that viewing things only through these legislative proposals, which are often uh, grandiose and unreasonable, just reinforce the old uh, British expression about environmentalists, that they're watermelons, they're green on the outside, but they're red on the inside. And that these things do seem, at least in the most well-known, and I think we'd have to say the Green New Deal is the most well-known of the most recent proposals on this, seem to function as that Trojan horse you mentioned for progressive policies otherwise incapable of being accomplished on their own merits. Absolutely. No, I mean, that's exactly, that's all exactly right. And, and you know, if people like AOC legitimately want to pass policies to mitigate climate change, um, they are 
acting enormously counterproductively right now because they're playing into the narrative about uh, sort of left-wing environmentalism being a watermelon. Um, and you know, to their credit, progressives are very honest about the fact that it's not just about rising carbon emissions, right? I mentioned earlier the architect of the Green New Deal um, said that it wasn't first and foremost a climate policy, it was a how do you change the entire economy thing, right? And you have um, you know, a variety of sort of prominent left-wing environmentalists like Naomi Klein, for example, who's a very famous left-wing environmentalist, saying, I'm not interested in solutions to climate change that preserve the existing power structures, right? I'm not interested in carbon pricing because it preserves market capitalism, right? Climate change is a symptom of a larger sort of uh, white supremacist, settler, colonialist, you know, capitalism that we need to overcome. Um, and, you know, fine, that's, that's it. That's a, that's a, you know, a political position that you can take, but you have to be reconciled to the fact that we're not going to do anything because the vast majority of Americans are, are, um, are rightfully repulsed by that sort of political project. Um, so, you know, the, the problem for and this is enormously frustrating for conservatives who are also environmentalists like me is I'm trying to sort of uh, make the case to other conservatives that climate change isn't a partisan left-wing issue and it is something conservatives should care about and conservation is a conservative value but when you have people like AOC dominating the environmentalist conversation um, and uh, sort of saying that abortion on demand is a necessary part of you know uh, an approach to to fighting climate change it makes it really difficult for sort of not even conservatives but just moderates to see where they fit in on the climate uh, discussion so it's it's actually you know, for all the hemming and hawing about sort of climate skepticism or denialism or whatever you want to call it on the right, the the, the far left is 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 I think the most harmful part of the sort of environmentalist conversation today because they're insisting that uh, any solution to climate change that doesn't dismantle capitalism is insufficient. It strikes me there's an inherent irony there as well that if you look around the world at the countries that are most environmentally sensitive. It is overwhelmingly the countries that have grown to be the wealthiest and that environmentalism is in a sense, in a sense, a luxury good. The kind of thing that you can care about when, you know, feeding your family and putting food on the table, having shelter are less of a pressing concern than they have been in the past. And then there's also the element of the way that um, markets have driven the advances of technology, where we hear so much about the pollution that comes from automobiles without asking the fundamental economic question, which is as compared to what? And compared to what came before it, which was horses primarily as a means of transportation, cities, especially major cities, are remarkably cleaner as a result of the advent of automobiles because there aren't uh, horses leaving their droppings everywhere all around the city. Um, so it seems there is a true irony in the capitalist abolitionist rhetoric in all of this because it is markets that have made it possible for us to care to the extent that we do about the quality of the environment. And the other thing on top of that for the sort of anti-capitalist environmentalist left is that the alternative to capitalism uh, generally is some form of planned economies. And planned economies traditionally have had an abysmal environmental record, right? The Soviet Union and Venezuela had just unspeakably awful uh, uh, environmental degradation practices that we would never tolerate in modern American society. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, this is something that I've, I talked about in my piece, um, which is that 
caring about an issue like climate change in many ways is a luxury of wealthy societies. You know, the the sort of anecdote that I use that I think is is a really illustrative of this is burning uh, tires is really, really bad for the environment as far as um, a variety of different uh, sort of emission issues. Um, but in some really poor African countries, uh, families burn tires to keep their children warm at night because it's the only available sort of cheap flammable source. Um, and if you are a, you know, a mother in, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, for example, and your choice is between keeping your children warm for the night and feeding them and, you know, uh, sort of being a good steward of the environment, what are you going to choose? Of course, you're going to choose to, uh, to, to keep your, your children warm and you can't start taking into consideration environmental questions until you have the basic necessities met. And those basic necessities are best met historically by unleashing the sort of uh, the prosperity of a free enterprise system. So you're absolutely right that uh, in, in many ways, and for a community to take environmental questions into consideration, they have to have already gone through the transformation achieved by a system of sort of free market enterprise. Before we redirect to what conservative uh, environmentalism really should look like and what proactive solutions to the climate and environmental issues that we face do look like, I'm curious to get your thoughts on, one more thought on the environmentalism of the left. Uh, to what extent do you consider the environmentalism of the left an expression of romanticism in that... So many of the solutions and not just the, the solutions that are proposed by uh, the environmentalist left, but what is opposed by them as well, uh, are strike me as attempts to return our primary sources of energy to the kind of things that our ancestors would have had that f seem more natural to us, the wind and the sun, and that uh, it is a way from solutions that are more environmentally friendly than a lot of the fossil fuels that we consume now, like nuclear energy. Uh, how much of it do you think is, one, an expression of that kind of romanticism and also stands in, I, I've talked a lot about on this program with previous guests about um, my theory and this theory of many others too, that the adoption of socialism by younger generations, I'm an older millennial, but by millennials and members of Generation Z, has a lot less to do with socialism as a ideological or economic program. They, they haven't read Marx. They don't know the true, the real, really grasp the ideology of it. But that it pings the religious instinct that we all have. Um, so that environmentalism strikes me also as another way, it could be coupled with what we talked about previously, with the policy agenda that comes along with it, as another expression of that religious instinct that we all have. Yeah, I think that's... Exactly right. Um, I think the sort of contemporary environmentalist wing of the progressive left um, is where you can sort of most vividly see the Rousseauian roots of uh, of the left in, in Anglo-American politics, right? I mean, even down to, you know, Rousseau's idea of the noble savage, this sort of idealized view of a um, pre-modern uh, sort of noble uh, creature that wasn't corrupted by all the trappings of modernity. If you listen to the way that a lot of environmentalists on the left talk about Native American communities and their sort of uh, coexistence with, with our environment, um, it's, it's many of them probably haven't read Rousseau, but it's enormously reminiscent of something that, um, that, that people like 
Rousseau talked about. And it's, 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 it is fundamentally this opposition to uh, the various achievements of modern liberal democracies and a romanticization of the way that communities lived in more primitive times. Um, but at the same time, you're right that uh, if you look at the sort of nature of modern environmentalist movements, um, they are clearly uh, religious and eschatological in nature, right? I mean, it's, it reminds me of, you know, Vogelin's idea of imminentizing the eschaton, but it's this idea that uh, the apocalypse is nigh. Um, and it's this attempt to sort of create a, a sort of religious uh, cult out of um, Mother Earth, right? Which in many ways is sort of a return also to the paganism of pre-modern societies. Um, and it's increasingly explicit. And once you sort of realize that and identify that, you see it everywhere in environmentalist rhetoric, right? But you have... Um, these sort of ritualistic rites at a lot of um, the modern environmentalist protests where they're worshiping the earth and apologizing to her, right? And, and in some even progressive Christian denominations, you have um, increasingly uh, sort of symptoms of this. But it's quite clearly, um, I think, and, and I think a lot of our politics, particularly on the left, can be understood as this. Um, it's the result of a secularizing society to a certain extent, and it's an attempt to reclaim an outlet for the religious impulse. Um, in a variety of different political projects, in this case, environmentalism, as a replacement for sort of traditional liturgy. Um, and it, it's increasingly explicitly religious. Uh, and it's actually, um, in a sort of dark way, sort of amusing to, to see the, how, how religious um, and explicitly pagan a lot of these movements are once you start noticing it. What should a conservative environmentalism advocate for as proactive solutions to address the problems that you've identified? So I think, you know, on a sort of first principles basis, a lot of what I talked about in my National Review article wasn't nuts and bolts policy. It was um, a sort of reframing of environmentalism in a conservative lens. Um, and that means an attachment to a sense of place, um, to subsidiarity, to the uh, primacy of local communities and um, understanding that local communities know what's best, right? This would sort of get to a Hayekian knowledge problem question um, and, and trying to avoid centrally planned solutions as much as possible. Um, so there's a variety of conservationist efforts that I think can be sort of are generally uncontroversial across the board. Um, uh, you know, our national parks and stewardship for those is, is an incredibly crucial part of the American identity. Um, a, a variety of different sort of uh, initiatives in terms of uh, good forest management, right? You're seeing that the consequences of really bad forest management in the wildfires in my, my home state of Oregon right now. Um, but in terms of climate change, and this is where I, I think uh, my policy proposals are, are still controversial uh, with my compatriots on the right. Um, I am personally in favor of uh, some uh, carbon pricing mechanism because I think it's the most market-based conservative approach to solving climate change. It's, it's, it would be paired with an enormous amount of deregulation. So in many ways, I think it's actually less of a centrally planned solution um, than what our government's doing right now, um, but it would price carbon upstream at the source um, and then deregulate massively in places like the EPA because it would make a variety of different command and control regulations um, essentially 
uh, uh, not necessary anymore. Um, and then it would it would also leave the, the sort of power of the market to decide um, uh, how to innovate uh, after that. It would essentially stimulate the market to direct it in the right direction away from, from carbon um, and then would allow the sort of spontaneous order of free market societies um, to innovate and create a, a sort of cleaner economy in the future. Would the argument for a carbon tax like that really be as simple as uh, pollution is a negative externality of our economy? And for those who are putting pollution in the air, then there is some sort of regulatory mechanism to be placed on there and that the most effective form of that is a carbon tax? Exactly. And it's of all of the sort of available solutions to climate change. And I'm very open to debates over starting really small in terms of the carbon tax and slowly working up so that we don't disrupt the economy too much. But for all of the available solutions that are actually serious about reducing carbon emissions, it's by far the most conservative or or libertarian or market-based, however you want to think about it, because the various sort of attempts at regulation um, inherently run into a sort of Hayekian knowledge problem where you have bureaucrats in DC trying to plan how an economy should best work in terms of clean energy. Whereas, as you pointed out, a price on carbon would essentially just price that up, that externality out and then leave the rest to local communities and to uh, market innovators to essentially decide how best to respond to that issue. How do you go about, and obviously you're attempting to do this in the piece that you wrote, but on on a larger scale, how do you go about persuading people who may be persuadable to adopt some kind of conservative environmentalism when on one extreme, and and, to remind ourselves, of course, living in a time where the extremes on a lot of arguments have grown louder and louder, uh, one extreme denies that the problem exists and on another extreme sees only the most wildly overcomprehensive and draconian solutions as part of, as the way to solve the problem. How do you think you can most effectively go about trying to persuade persuadable people, A, that it's a serious problem that needs to be addressed and B, that, uh, the solutions, like you've suggested, would be the most effective means to address them. Yeah, I think just briefly on the point about the the sort of uh, scale from complete denial to draconian solutions, something that I think uh, conservatives who care about environmental issues don't talk about enough is not only does the Green New Deal not promise to uh, or promise to be an incredibly draconian um, solution, there's also no guarantee that it would work. I mean, again, like planned economies have horrific environmental records. So it would definitely destroy the economy, but it's very much an open question if it would actually have any effect at all in reducing our carbon emissions. Um, but I think at the at the risk of sounding redundant, uh, the first step in, in um, convincing folks on my side of the aisle um, that climate change and environmentalism more more broadly are things that conservatives should care about is really attempting to explicitly decouple climate change from the political left and making the case uh, in conservative terms um, that climate change is an issue that is appropriate for a sort of conservative policy agenda. Because unfortunately, the, um, the one of the many problems of the left's domination of the environmentalist movement is the very language that we use to talk about issues like climate change is many in many ways inherently left-wing. 
right? And and it's it's difficult to talk about it in ways that can appeal to conservatives because it's, things like climate justice, which is a very fashionable neologism right now, has all types of ramifications that are rightly sort of um, repulsive to conservatives. So making the case that it's an issue that conservatives can care about and creating a permission structure for conservatives to come back to the table on that, um, I think, uh, is the best way to, to talk about it and, and grounding it in a love of country. Um, and if you're a, uh, a religious traditionalist um, caring for sort of God's creation, I think are, is, are ways to do that, uh, legitimate ways to do that, and not just rhetorical tricks. Um, and, and then secondly, in terms of you know my preferred policy of carbon pricing, I think uh, pointing out that this is the market-based way to solve it and um, it's not just another tax, right? It's, uh, you know, it's, first of all, generally the, the idea is it would be a carbon fee and dividend where the, the money isn't going directly to the government, but is essentially just uh, being uh, re reinvested into communities that might be um, affected adversely initially by the carbon tax. But also, I think even more importantly, pointing out the fact that it would be paired with a major deregulatory program um, that would actually, in many important ways, get the government out of our lives, um, particularly in terms of the EPA, which traditionally has been very overbearing and uh, hasn't been particularly productive in reducing carbon emissions, um, but has increasingly told average Americans uh, how to live their lives, um, which Americans, uh, by and large, uh, you know, we are a very individualistic people, we uh, sort of object to that. So making the case to Americans that uh, not only is this caring for the things that we love about our communities and attempting to pass it down to uh, future generations um, and to be good stewards of our communities, um, but it also the, the net effect would be a reduction of government's control over your life, which most Americans, I still think, um, resonate with. Nate Hockman is a senior at Colorado College, a Young Voices associate contributor, a conservative fellow at the Citizens Climate Lobby, and a former editorial intern at National Review and Dispatch. His article, Toward a Conservative Environmentalism, appears in the September 21st, 2020 issue of National Review. Nate, thank you so much for joining us today on Act in Line. Thanks, Derek. That was a lot of fun. As always, thank you so much for listening today. Our team loves putting this show together for you every week, and it's so encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can reach our team at actonline at actin.org. Until next week, for Act in Line, I'm Eric Cohn.